going to give an introduction, four points from this text, which I'm going to read. Then I'm going to say something a little bit about Jesus. And I'm going to say something a little bit about the crowd. And we'll be done. How's that? So let's read the text. At, uh, the triumphal entry starts in verse 12 of chapter 12. But in the first part of chapter 12 is when Jesus arrives at Bethany and is at the house of Lazarus. Lazarus is the, the fellow that, you remember, he raised from the dead. And uh, you'll see a little later in the text, which I'm not going to read this, but just explain it. The Pharisees that want to kill Lazarus because obviously he's a walking, talking miracle. And uh, they, don't want, they want nothing to do with him. But Jesus in Bethany is sitting down. He's talking to his disciples and Mary sits down at his feet and breaks open this expensive perfume and anoints him. And Judas gets a little mad and says, no, we could have sold that and given the money to the poor. And Jesus, knowing his thoughts, say, no, you just wanted to steal the money. And he says, no, leave her alone. You'll always have the poor with you, but you won't always have me with you. And so there's this interaction. But the thing that happens there that's interesting is for the kind of the really the first time you see Jesus accepting some accolade. In a very under-subversive role, he's allowing someone to anoint him, someone to acknowledge him for something, and he's not trying to be humble and push them away. He's actually saying, no, it's okay. It's like, well, it's not like Jesus. It's not his normal way of doing things. But it leads us into this triumphal entry where that gets kind of elevated a whole little more. So let's read it from John chapter 12, verse 12. The next day... The large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Can you just imagine that? The the Caesars would have been just freaking out. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. It's a quote from Zechariah, which Aaron read to us. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. There's a sense of Jesus coming in, preparing. He's done all his ministry. Now he sets his eyes on Jerusalem. He's coming in. And in in one of the other um, references in, in Luke's gospel, there's this thing of when he arrives in Jerusalem, just as a little tuck in, he just begins to weep. Because he looks at the city and says, man, you're a city without a shepherd. I mean, you're just in need. He just weeps over the city. That's the Jesus that we follow. So four points from that little thing before I say something about Jesus, something about the crowd. Number one, triumphal entries or triumphal processions that happen where he's coming in and people are Hosanna, throwing down branches. It's kind of pretty commonplace in the ancient world. This wasn't a unique thing. It's kind of happened. The Caesars did it every time they had a, a, a won a battle. They'd come into Rome, wherever, on their chariots with their soldiers marching, and the people would be cheering. Whoa. You've seen the movies. Just like that. But actually, Alexander the Great did it. 
and Cleopatra did it. And you just, just guys, you can look at history. They all did these things because there were signs of victory. They wanted the people to know we're in charge. We have the power. Woo! Everyone's doing it. 200 years prior to Jesus, you had the Maccabean revolts. And Simon Maccabeus, he actually fended off the Romans. And he came into Jerusalem and everyone waved palm branches. Because he came in victorious as well. And it's like, okay, this is nothing new. It's a commonplace event, so we need to understand that. Actually, in the modern era, which what we live in, we do the same thing, don't we? You know, the Lakers win a championship. We have a parade, and people, whoa, and they shout, and they wave banners, and they do all those things, don't they? When we landed on the moon, ticket tape parade through New York, we, we do those things. When we have a great victory, we declare it is finished, and we, you know, we do that in the modern era as well. It's, it's this, none of this is new. It's what Jesus does with it that's important. Because um, these things are a demonstration of victory and strength and force and whoa, you know. It's like, no, we've got to have a parade down the center, and let's put out all, all the tanks and all the missiles. Let's do it. Show how strong we are. It's kind of, we still do it. Thousands of years later, we have not learned our lesson. Secondly, waving palm branches or other branches, doesn't have to be palms, is also a very common place in the ancient world. So if you, if you just look at this in, historically, in the Maccabean era, when Simon Maccabeus had won this victory, they waved palms. And the palm became a sign of the Jewish state prior to Christ. Okay, So when the Jews began to mint their own coins in opposition to the Romans, they put a palm on their coin. They were basically saying, we're in revolt. We get... Does it make sense? It was a sign of, of in revolution, of opposition, of, of, of we, 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 don't want, we don't want this emperor. Well, then the Romans came and crushed them. So the Romans minted coins, put Caesar on one end and a palm on the other. Said, no, we're stronger. All right, so the palm, but the palm branch represents kind of this nationalistic fervor and aspirations for independence and to throw off the shackles of the oppressing culture. That's what the, that's what the palm means. Not this palm, that palm. Oh. If, they, if this was being done in... It's Pasadena today. We must probably do roses because this is the rose city. You know? um, but it, wasn't, it wasn't anything new. We do it today by, on parades, we throw scarves and banners and we have all these things that say whatever our team is and we, we celebrate. We, it's just commonplace to human society. It's nothing new. It's what Jesus does with it that's a little different. The third point. So the first one is that triumphal entries are commonplace. Second one is that the waving of palms or other plants is commonplace in the ancient world and in the modern world. The third one is this word Hosanna. Hosanna to the highest. It's also fairly commonplace. It wasn't particularly a religious word initially. It was a word that just meant give us salvation, victory now. Hosanna to Caesar. That's all they were saying. Everyone was yelling just like, because if you didn't yell, your head was chopped off. So you better yell. Okay? Um, today I watched the end of the Masters Golf. Anyone follow golf? 
The tiger won again. At the end, he stands. He pats in. Just here. Tiger. 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 It's the same stuff. We've got to yell. We've got to shout. It's what we do. So Hosanna, shout. That was commonplace. It wasn't new. It wasn't anything special. It was kind of new. It's what the crowds did. Here's where something is not commonplace. The fourth point is that Jesus received the accolades, which is unusual because Jesus always, whenever he did things, he said, don't tell anyone. Shh. Go away. Don't tell anybody. I don't want anybody to know. Shh. Keep it under wraps. Shh. Isn't that Jesus' way? Read the Gospels. Whenever he heals, delivers, does something, shh, don't tell anybody. Keep it quiet. This time, he's right. He's coming and he's receiving the accolades. One of the bits says, if, if you shut the people up, even the rocks are going to do this. It's kind of, no, that's a shift in the way that Jesus is doing it. It's, um, one commentator says this. He says, it's like Jesus was saying, crown me or kill me. But I don't want to be just someone that's liked. Now, Jesus didn't say that. It's a commentator making a statement. It's like Jesus saying, here I'm coming now. Your choice, crown me or kill me. But I'm coming to do what I have to do. I'm just not a nice person. I've actually got a purpose. And this Palm Sunday is Jesus setting out to fulfill that purpose. Now, obviously, his whole life has been doing that. But this is this week where he sets out to do this. Um, it's Jesus actually been in receiving that accolade and not rejecting it. He's actually rising up in a confrontational way in the way that Jesus would do it against the religious and political forces of the day because he's standing up against the Pharisees and the Sadducees, you know, who are expecting this one type of king, and he's saying, I'm that. And to the political forces, he says, well, you can worship Caesar, but I'm the real king. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to God what is God's. So we're going to touch back on that. So we've got three things that are pretty common. One thing that's very uncommon, the shift in Jesus. Now, how does, it apply, how does just that apply to us today? It's this, is that often, as I thought, maybe your mind doesn't make the connection, but it makes it for me. Often we want Jesus the Savior, but we don't want Jesus the Lord. You've got to have both. Does that make sense? To receive Jesus as Savior is to receive him and acknowledge him as Lord. Sometimes we just want the Savior. We want the person that will save us from our sins, put us on the right track to heaven. But please, on earth, let us not have to bow down to this Lord and, and obey him. It's like saying, I really want Terry, but I don't want Fouché. I want Mike, but not Spielman. No, you get the whole package. When you receive Jesus, you receive in Jesus the Savior that calls you to acknowledge Jesus the Lord. And these people have always want, had liked what Jesus was doing. He was the one that saved them and delivered them and healed them. And he's saying, no, you can't just have that. You've got to now acknowledge Jesus the Lord, and we'll see what that looks like. Does that make sense? Is that all right? Four things, three very commonplace things, one very uncommon thing, Jesus 
changing the way he does things. So here's the question. What? The king comes riding in his glory on a friggin' donkey? That doesn't make any sense at all. Because a king would ride in on a war horse or on a chariot. Alexander the Great. Anyone studied Alexander the Great? What is the name of his horse? Sorry? Be careful, I think, yeah. His horse had a name. It's going down in history. Any other horses go down in from that time? Alexander the Great's horse. He would ride on his horse. Kings would come in on their chariots. The pharaohs would ride their chariots or their soldiers. The king of kings came on a donkey. Not only was it not just a donkey, it was a young donkey that hadn't been trained yet, but it seemed to obey him. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? And this is prophesied in Zechariah chapter 9, which is what Aaron read to us. Your king will come riding on a colt, on a young donkey. What is this saying? Just that one image, that one statement, what is being said in the Gospels? It's saying that the victory that Jesus brings, the ruling power that he brings, is going to be very, very different. When we come to the crowds, we'll look at how they responded to that. You see, he is coming to Jerusalem. Well, he was. He was coming into Jerusalem to save, to deliver, and to rule. He was. But not by military power. And not by killing people. And not by force. That's not how he was coming. However, there were implications to military powers and political powers. Great implications. But he was going to do this by himself dying. Instead of him coming in and crushing. No, he was going to die. And he was going to be broken. And he was going to lose power. He was going to serve. Which is the very opposite of every other warrior king that came riding into their city. He started by doing it on a donkey. Imagine if he had come riding on his big black charger. And then he was ripped off and put on a cross. He said, no, I'll show you a start. I'll come on the donkey. A sign of humility. See, this triumph comes through weakness and humility. When we say we are disciples of Jesus... And we want to be like Jesus and talk like Jesus and do what Jesus does. Then we are actually declaring that we want to live a life of weakness, of humility, trusting that the power of weakness overcomes the power of force and violence. I think Jesus was wanting to demonstrate something. I think he was wanting to demonstrate that if you want to be my follower, that, your, that our salvation and our redemption is going to come when we acknowledge that we have need. And we acknowledge our weakness. And we acknowledge that our self-sufficiency is inadequate to save us. Because Jesus manifests that. Jesus demonstrates that. He said, this power will be in the weakness. And if I, your King and Lord, can live and show weakness, then you too can do that. And in that you will receive your healing and your power. Because to be 
to receive Jesus' salvation or to receive Jesus' healing predominantly comes around the, the I need help. And when you say I need help, you are declaring that you are weak and you're, in a, you're incapable of doing it yourself. That's the essence of the gospel, isn't it? I need help. Um, Because we're not saved by our good works. We're not saved by our mighty deeds. We are not saved by anything except by the grace of God through Jesus. Um, Ephesians 2 is a wonderful scripture. And uh, we're not masters of our own destiny because of our status or our wealth or our power or any of those things. We actually all have need. And by Jesus demonstrating that humility, he was laying a platform to say we can all display that humility and that all of us are on the same playing field to receive grace, to receive life, to receive this new life in Christ. It comes by demonstrating weakness. I I have need. It also says that the salvation is available to all. It's not only available to those who could pay their way in or broker their way in or power their way in or whatever. It comes to those who acknowledge that they have need. It's for the weak. It's also for the rich and the strong, and if they will acknowledge that they, that's insufficient. It's for everybody. It's saying that anybody and everybody, if they want, can enter into this new life in Jesus Remember when John the Baptist started his ministry and then Jesus followed and said, Repent. Why? For the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is here. The rule of God is here. You can enter in. But the only way you can enter in is to repent. What are you repenting of? You're repenting of your self-sufficiency. You're saying, I I can do this. I I can save myself. No, you're changing and saying, I see myself in the light of it. I can't do this by myself. I need you, Jesus, to bring me in. And if you do that, anybody can enter in. That was, the, that was the power of Jesus' message, that the kingdom of a God was available to everybody and anybody if they would enter in. And that just because someone was broken and weak and sick was not a disqualifying factor from entering the kingdom, as the Pharisees would have taught. Remember the story. Blessed are they. The rich and wealthy and powerful, for theirs is the kingdom of God. It doesn't say that. So blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Um, uh, Tim Keller, in his book on Mark, he often talks about the, the counterintuitive king. I love that. If you've read that book of his, the counterintuitive king. Jesus is counterintuitive to everything that else that goes. You come looking for that, but you get this. You know, and it tells us there in, in, the, in John that the, gospel, the, the disciples just didn't get it until after the resurrection. And suddenly it went, the Rubik's screwed. Oh, that's what it looks like. They just didn't see it until that moment because it looked all wrong. This was Jesus, Messiah, King, Lord. What? Donkey? Dying? What? Resurrection. Ah. It's something about Jesus. That's something about the crowds. They came because they wanted something. 
They didn't come primarily just to acknowledge Jesus. They came because they wanted something. They wanted deliverance or they wanted healing or they wanted the Romans gone or whatever they wanted. But they came, as most of us do when we come to Jesus, we come to Jesus on our own terms. We want him to work in our time frame without, much too, without too much disruption to our lives. Isn't that right? We come to Jesus on our own terms, within our time frame, and he mustn't disrupt our lives too much. I'll take a little bit of Jesus, too, but not too much. Just a little bit. Just sprinkle a little bit of Jesus on my life, but don't do the whole thing. See, they, they, they wanted him to get rid of the Romans. Here's the Messiah King. They, thinking back 200 years to the Maccabean Revolt. Yeah, here he is. He's going to get rid of the pressing power of the Romans. They're going to be gone. And Jesus says, uh, no, that's not the problem. Actually, fallen humanity is the problem. The Romans are just a symptom of fallen humanity. Actually, you're the problem as well. Because you too are separated, just like they are. But our human condition is, it's their fault. It's your fault. It's not my fault, it's your fault. Isn't that our human condition? It's their fault. No, it's the Romans' fault. We wouldn't be like this if it weren't for the Romans. We wouldn't be like this if it wasn't for them. We wouldn't be like that if it wasn't for them. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. You're the wrong thing. I've not come to deal with the Romans. I've come to deal with the problem. The human the problem of the human condition. That's what I've come to deal with. And you part of it. No, we don't like that. Because that's too disruptive. It means I have to change. Just get rid of the Romans. If I could just get that person out of my life, my life would go well. If I just had another wife or a husband, or in a, it would be better. No, actually, you're the problem, Jesus says. They might be a problem, but you're the problem. And he wants to deal with the very root of the issue. So when Jesus comes riding in, he knows he's going to have victory. He knows it's going to, but it's not about the Romans. Because the Romans left eventually. They got crumbled. It became a, a nothing empire. And other empires rose up. Just as a little, just for me, have my own little dig. Is that okay? Just in the midst of this. We have to learn from history. There's a great poet in England. His name was Steve Turney. He says, history repeats itself. has to because nobody listens. History repeats itself. Every single superpower in history has come down. Is that okay? Please don't think we're the exception. We're coming down. There's one superpower that will rule forever. It's the kingdom of God. And so America was at the top and it's going down. And the Chinese will rise up and they will go down. And Iceland will rise. Denmark, never. They tried it a number of hundred years ago. Didn't work. You see, let me just... Another look. Thomas, on Friday, passed his citizenship exam. They're going to let him in to be an American. Eh? We're in trouble. Congrats. We have to learn every superpower comes down. We have to realize that when you hold your position, you become your own superpower. You come down some, somewhere. Just do it voluntarily. Just bow your knee at King Jesus. Let him 
deal with the very core thing. You see, I, I think, I might be wrong, I'm not a psychologist. I sat next to a psychologist once. <laughs> There's a story that I sat next to a psychologist on a plane when I went to South Africa from, from London to Johannesburg a few weeks ago. Doctorate in psychology, his whole area of study was trauma. He was going to a trauma conference in South Africa, and he was going to look at the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that was formed after apartheid, how people found healing in the midst of trauma. But this con- their study is this, everybody's now traumatized by something, and we can no longer differentiate between what is real trauma and what is perceived trauma. All right? So I give Casey a hug. Oh, that was really uncomfortable. I'm traumatized. That robs a person who's truly been abused because you just lump them in the same category and they're trying to do that. The issue is here, we've, started, we've got a victim mentality. These people had a victim mentality. It's the Romans' fault. You'll never find healing and deliverance and fullness of life while you take on a victim mentality, you, you find healing by releasing the person that hurt you, by coming to Jesus and allowing him to cleanse you and teach you how to love your enemies, etc., 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 etc. We never want to minimize that people have been victimized. As you know, I am a victim of sexual abuse, me personally. Now, I can live as a victim if I want to. Oh, it's their fault. It's the Catholic Church's fault. I don't have to live like that. Jesus, come and set me free. I might have to deal with some stuff. But if you will get to the root of the issue, we can, we can find deliverance. If you will not get to the root of the issue, if you will keep blaming, you will never find deliverance. You will never find healing. And Jesus riding in on a donkey, coming into Jerusalem, he's saying, I'm going underneath the Romans and I'm getting to the real issue. It's the human condition. It is sin separation from God. Again, I'm sorry, I've opened a door that's so much to talk about, but I hope that makes sense. I don't want to minimize if someone's a victim of something. There are people that are victims of rape and violent abuse and all sorts of things. No, I want to minimize that, but I want you to find healing. I want you to find a place where you, f- you walk free and, you, and your story becomes something that others can hear and bring healing to them because you found healing. And we need to get help sometimes. You see, the moment you ask for help is you saying, I'm weak. That's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. I was, I'm raised, I'm an alpha dog, white South African male. We don't acknowledge weakness. You pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You figure it out yourself. And then eight years of boarding school and two years in the military, you don't want to tell people your weakness because they'll just bully you. And Make sense? So what happens? You become this independent person. I want to say deliverance came when I began to say, no, that's actually not the way I want to live. And it didn't come in the first day of being a Christian either. It started about five years ago when I've been a Christian for 30-something years because it was then that I said, no, I want to open up. See, if these people 2,000 years ago had just acknowledged their weakness, actually it's our problem. It's not the Romans' problem. Sure, the Romans are doing things that are not, you know, the Romans could just kill people because they felt like it. 
but God, would you deal with me? You know, they say about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, when he, when, when he was in a concentration camps in Nazi Germany, when he walked into a, a, a cell block, the place lit up. Because he found freedom, even though he had the oppressors. William Frankel, he said, I might be in chains and in a cell, but I am as free as free can be. Because it's not about what people do to me, it's what I have discovered inside of me in God. Please, can we learn from this story about this Jesus that we serve, that's a humble Jesus that ex- showed weakness and said that power comes in weakness. Your power for healing and deliverance and wholeness will come in your acknowledgement of your weakness. I need help. Please help me. Can I move off on that? Have I stuck on that too much? I'm sorry. You see, this is the crowd. Hosanna! A few days later, crucify him! Same crowd. He's the Lord, he's the king. We'll have no other king but Caesar. What's that called? Fickleness. The fickleness of the human condition. Stand at the altar. I'm committed to you through thick and thin, rich or poor, sickness and in health. I am committed to you. I love you, dear. <laughs> My covenant to you. One week later, I've had enough of you. Get out of here. I don't want to be married to you anymore. The fickleness of the human condition. Please submit ourselves to Jesus, who showed strength and absolute weakness. You know? I'm going to follow you, Jesus, with all my heart. And then we, something happens and we, no, that doesn't quite work for me anymore. You know what Zechariah 9 tells us that, about Jesus? I'm going to quickly go there. That he got that they didn't get, that people didn't get, they got it later. It says this. Uh, where is it? He shall speak peace to who? To the nations. Not just to Israel. To the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river where to the ends of the earth. So when Jesus comes riding on a colt to fulfill that prophetic word, he knows that what he's going to do in Jerusalem is not about Israel predominantly. It includes it. But it's about the whole world. Because he's not just king of the Jews. He's king of the whole world. The whole world. The whole universe belongs to him. That's a profound statement. And that all they could do on his cross was write, here is king of the Jews. No, no, no. Above that. Here is King of the universe. Keller says this. I read something he wrote on Palm Sunday. He said, Palm Sunday, I'm closing with this, is a powerful parable of the lifelong lifelong mismatch of what we think we need and what God has provided. Can I read that again? Palm Sunday is a powerful parable of the lifelong mismatch of what we think we need and what God has actually provided.